Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Well, I want to turn our attention now to the airline industry and specifically to Hawaiian Airlines. The president and chief executive of Hawaiian Holdings joins us now, Mark Dunkley. Mark, always a pleasure to speak with you. Um, I want to set the stage. Uh, back in July during the, con- the earnings conference call, and I just want to parenthetically say, I know that you're going to be releasing your results next Thursday, so you're yeah, in a quiet right. period. So, um, you know, you can kind of do the air quotes and we'll make believe we understand what you're saying. But uh, uh, at, on the conference call last uh, quarter, you talked about things like the extra comfort seats, uh, the new A321neos from Airbus, uh, the relocation at the Los An- at uh, at LAX, also first route expansion uh, because of those uh, the new aircraft. Now I'm an invest, not me, but I'm you know an investor comes to the call uh, next Thursday and says, yeah, but wait, the stock is down 33 percent this year. What is happening? How, uh, what can you say, given the quiet period, in order to at least uh, make people not go bananas when they, when they get on the call? Yeah, um, well, I, I think, you know, when you look at our share price performance over the last several years, we were the sort of bell of the industry, um, seeing our, our, our stock appreciate. Uh, in the last couple of months, there have been uh, two uh, prominent announcements by competitors that they're going to uh, add capacity in our market, and that's clearly weighing... Southwest, uh, on, for example. Uh, Southwest is one, and United was the other a couple of months ago. Um, I think the things to, to look to, though, are um, a, a couple of factors. One is that we continue to talk with great confidence about uh, the superior, superiority of our product, the fact that, you know, for, for what we do, which is uh, flying to Hawaii and selling Hawaii as a destination around the world, uh, nobody's got a better formula than we do, and we, we frankly wouldn't trade places with, with any of our competitors. And, I, you know, we're sort of backing up that confidence as recently as a couple of days ago. We announced a quarterly dividend that we're going to pay. Um, and that's, you know, very deliberately to, to send a signal to say that, uh, you know, at least looking into the long term, uh, looking beyond what uh, may happen uh, with additional capacity coming in next year, looking to the long term, uh, we in the management team and the board of directors have uh, great confidence in our franchise. Okay. So, uh, and the, the dividend, what, at 12 cents a share, so that's like one and a quarter percent based on today's uh, stock price of $38. Uh, can you maybe just describe to people the franchise that you have inter-island and how perhaps the revenue from that franchise almost offers a kind of annuity to the business that other airlines may not have. Uh, yeah, we, we, we account for about 85 to 90 percent of all the travel between the islands of the state of Hawaii. And for, the, for your listeners who may not be as familiar with Hawaii as they'd certainly like to be, um, uh, what I can say is it's a bigger business than, than people perhaps have uh, uh, in mind. I mean, we, we fly um, 32 times a day in each direction between Honolulu and Maui. Just to give you a sense of the scale of it, we carry more passengers between Honolulu and Kahului than all airlines combined fly between uh, Washington National uh, and uh, LaGuardia Airports in, in New York. So it's a pretty big business. We have 85 uh, or 90 percent thereabouts 
uh, of that market, and it's a business that that sort of carries everyday life here. School groups, people going to see their uh, their doctors, um, things like that. So it, it tends to have pretty low price elasticity of demand and pretty low income elasticity of demand. Tell us a little bit about uh, Japan Airlines alliances and the new routes uh, from Haneda and Narita. Well, Pim, you, you know, you followed our story for, for a long time, and, and as your listeners may perhaps, again, not appreciate fully, um, the, the bulk of our expansion over the last seven years, and we've quadrupled in size during that period of time, the, the bulk of that uh, has come from uh, expanding around the Pacific Rim, most prominently to Japan. And uh, uh, three, three or so weeks ago, we announced um, uh, a relationship with Japan Airlines, which is one of the world's absolute best airlines. I mean, it's a quality, quality uh, company. Uh, and together, we're going to, in the first instance, be co-chairing and um, uh, you know, doing those kinds of cooperative activities. But, uh, but we're also both committed to uh, seeking to enter into a joint venture, uh, which we believe will it, it improve choices to customers and also uh, make us better able to compete in the market and, and better for our company. If uh, not that you get to choose between 787s and A330neos, uh, I know that that's been an issue, but the, the trend is what? To have aircraft that are more economical, that can fly longer, such as uh, even you know the, the new uh, 737 MAX, right? Yeah, we're taking delivery uh, in a couple of weeks' time of our first A321neo, which is a uh, uh, narrowbody. Um, it, in its class, it is the most fuel-efficient narrowbody, best suited for the markets that we're going to fly with it, uh, which is the, the smaller markets between the U.S. West Coast and, and Hawaii. Uh, it, it is, it is a, it's a new breed of airplane, and uh, both Boeing and Airbus um, have airplanes that fit in that category. This particular one, for this particular mission, uh, the A321neo uh, by Airbus is, is head and shoulders the superior airplane for the route. So maybe just step back for a second, and as someone that's a veteran in the industry, what does an aircraft like that, the, the 321neo and even the, uh, the Boeing MAX, what does that do to the sort of whole strategy of where you fly, how you fly, and how you allocate the fleet? Uh, we spend a lot of time uh, on that on, on that very question. I mean, it, it, uh, you know, costs are sort of everything in the airline business, and finding the right aircraft for the right routes and the right size uh, is of paramount importance. Um, you know, for, for many airlines, uh, they're blending their needs. You know, they fly uh, routes that are two, 200 miles, 500 miles, 1,000, 1,500, 2,000, 3,000 miles, and they have to find uh, aircraft that are sort of, the ideal compromise for all of those routes. What's, I think, pretty unique about Hawaiian uh, is that we have some very short-haul business between the islands, just one to 200 nautical miles. Then we have nothing uh, until 2,500 nautical miles, where we have uh, almost half of our business is, is uh, between the U.S. West Coast and, and, and Hawaii. Uh, and then beyond that, we go to eight to 10 hour to, to up, up to almost 12, 13 hour flights. So we have these very specific needs, um, and a lot of time and attention goes into choosing the aircraft that's right for the needs. And both 
uh, airframers, Airbus and Boeing make terrific airplanes, uh, as do the uh, engine manufacturers who, who power them. I want to thank you very much for spending time with us. Uh, Mark Dunkley is the president and the chief executive of Hawaiian Holdings. Uh, that is the uh, owner of the parent company of Hawaiian Airlines. And uh, they'll be releasing their results uh, next Thursday. Our next guest is Rick Lazio. He is the senior vice president of Alliant Group. He's the former U.S. representative from New York, serving in Congress from 1993 to 2001. Representative Lazio, thank you very much for being uh, with us. Uh, I wonder if you could just get your response to uh, comments made earlier today on Bloomberg Television. Uh, Larry Summers, former uh, Treasury Secretary, was speaking with David Weston and Alex Steele, and he said, I believe that when you put something forth called tax plan, it has to be described in a way where people can figure out what their taxes would be under it. You need some data. And he says, we're operating outside of those parameters. What's your response? My response is that the bill hasn't been drafted yet, and it will run through committee. And those numbers will be provided by what's called the Joint Tax Committee in uh, Congress. And uh, Secretary Summers will have all the data that he'd like. I'm sure he's going to have an issue with 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 uh, the assumptions that are made, but there'll be plenty of data before the bill is actually voted on and sent to the president's desk. Okay, so understanding that we're going to get more details, uh, Representative Lazio, so far the details that we have gotten have led to a number of different think tanks to say that it could potentially raise taxes on certain middle class uh, workers in the United States, and it could potentially uh, provide a boon to, say, hedge funds or independent contractors who could claim to be passed through entities. What's your response to that? My response to that, again, is that we have to sort of look at, wait for the details and see overall how this affects the general economy. The name, uh, I think the, the challenge here is how do you get growth rates back up to a consistent 3% rate? And that is where we've been in past expansions. We've been running at 222 since the beginning of this expansion, so it's, it's suboptimal. The major culprit, uh, in my Sense, my belief it is a business investment that has been holding down both productivity and overall GDP growth. And the best way to get at that is to incentivize more business investment. And that's partly through things like the research and development tax credit and other business incentives, as, as well as expensing equipment and, uh, and factories and the kinds of things that we want businesses to invest in that ultimately lead to hiring more people and paying their workers more more right. in salary. Understood. So this sort of virtuous cycle. But uh, right. Representative Lazio, how are we able to even uh, negotiate or discuss a plan that, as you say, is missing so many details? And, you know, is it unusual or unwise to not open it up and be more forthcoming during the negotiation phases? Because normally uh, there are more details at this point in the process. Well, I think we, we can talk about what we know so far. We know that there is general consensus among Republicans in the House and the Senate to collapse rates uh, from seven rates down to three, and would probably will end up being four before all is said and done. We know that there is an effort to move toward an extraterritorial tax system and try and repatriate 
two and a half or three trillion dollars of money that's trapped overseas. We know that there's general agreement on reducing the C corp or corporate tax rates, and we know that there's going to be a extraordinary effort to try and make sure that there is some rough parity with pass-through entities, and that small businesses that employ about half of all American workers uh, will also see relief. So, you know, there are a a number of very critical pillars to the reform that's being put forward that we do know a lot about. Do we know exactly what the language is? No, we'll have to wait until that bill is drafted, and it obviously won't be voted on until it's drafted. Do you believe that whatever bill is drafted and passed should be revenue neutral? Well, I believe that they that that Congress and the President need to be mindful and realistic about the budget deficit. I think it, the, the the size of the deficit is a threat to future growth. So that's uh, yes. That's a that's a that's, do I do I think it needs to be revenue neutral? I think they need to look at it in terms. Should of we what, be all able to understand how it's going to be paid for? Yes, of course. Okay. Then do you believe that threatening sitting senators like the Democrat Joe Donnelly from Indiana, who is on the committee, uh, that the president's going to work for his defeat unless he falls into line with the tax plan? And he's been asking for information about what exactly this is going to do to the budget. Does that make any sense? I, I always think that you are better off in the long run appealing to somebody's better angels and to persuading through positive uh, data and arguments. Right. So, you know, this, is this part of uh, the body politic these days on both sides of the aisle? Of course it is. Do I think it's what the way approach I would take? No, it's not. Uh, Representative Lazio, you uh, represented New York, and uh, New York could potentially be the uh, one of the bigger losers from this whole plan since the local deductions uh, would be eliminated. What's your view on that? Well, it's very difficult to get rates down, marginal rates down, if you don't address deductions. And the, one of the largest deductions is state and local taxes, about $1.3 trillion in revenues, lo- revenue lost through that. Um, I think if you're from New York or you're from California or from New Jersey, and by the way, those states are the are, are major consumers of the state and local deduction, especially upper income people, I mean, about about... 70%, for example, of um, the benefit for state income taxes and sales taxes flow through people making over $200,000. So th- this, is, this would affect mostly upper-income people in high-tax states, and of course, California, New York, New Jersey are, are three of them. Um, if I'm in a town hall meeting and I'm talking to a constituent, I'm going to be this constituent is going to raise their hand. What about my state and local taxes? I'd say, well, number one, let's see how you do overall. The standard deduction is proposed to be doubled. Um, right now, most Americans don't file itemized returns because they get a standard deduction. Right. Even fewer Americans will will file itemized returns if the standard deduction is doubled right. to twenty. Uh, Twenty-four thousand. So, so it could I, potentially be less than than people are expected, or it might affect the only the wealthiest people. Uh, Rick Lazio, I would love to continue the conversation, but we have to we have to run. Rick Lazio is senior vice president uh, for Alliant Group. He also was a former U.S. representative from New York, serving Congress from nineteen ninety three to two thousand one.
Well, the hottest spot in credit markets this year is arguably emerging markets credit. credit. And the riskier, the better. In fact, Aviva Investors uh, just came out and said that they view local currency emerging markets debt as safer than U.S. Treasuries. Here to weigh in on what we've been seeing in the emerging markets space is Damian Sassauer, fixed income strategist focused on developing markets for Bloomberg Intelligence. And he joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Uh, Damien, does this scare you? Um, well, I don't think it scares me per se. I mean, I just think it speaks to the state of liquidity in, in developed markets right now and tight spreads, low yields, broadly speaking, across the whole of you know fixed income. So I think there's a lot of cash out there and there aren't a lot of places to put it. And that's what's driving EM here. Well, one of the places that people are putting it is in the ETF, EMB. This is the iShares uh, Emerging Markets uh, Debt Fund, right? This is uh, the one that uh, JP Morgan has put together. And the fund is up more than 9% so far this year. But here, this is what I want you to explain if you can. Um, Egypt, El Salvador, Argentina, <laughs> Hungary, uh can you explain what it is about these, other than the yield, Peru, Poland, I could go on, Panama. You really, does anybody really believe that these are better credits? <laughs> these are governments now, that these are better sovereign credits than the U.S. Treasury. Well, no, I mean, I think what you have to look at when you're evaluating any sovereign issuers, you have to look at their current account, their balance sheet, their current account balances. You have to look at their external debt exposure, right? Because when we get into times where, for example, on September 20th, uh, the Federal Reserve announced that hey, they're not going to be uh, data dependent any longer. They're going to be hiking regardless. You know, you have to look at what that means for local currencies. And, and that means if you have a lot of external debt exposure, i.e. you're hungry and you've issued a lot of U.S. dollar debt, you might be in for a little asset liability mismatch if things go south on you. And then there's FX reserves. There's real effective exchange rates. There's a lot of metrics you can look at when you're evaluating sovereign risk exposure. But by and large, that is, um, you know, that is basically what investors are looking at. And that's what's driving returns. I'm struck by the flood of money into local currency uh, emerging markets debt because you're talking about the currency exposure. And actually, if you look at the flows into EMB, which is the U.S. dollar emerging markets debt ETF versus EMLC, which is yes. the local currency EM debt, it's the money has gone disproportionately to the local currency debt. And I'm wondering how much is this completely a wager on the dollar staying weak and possibly weakening further. Oh, that's exactly what it is. I mean, currency attribution for local currency government debt from emerging markets is roughly 80% of the equation, right? So you're absolutely right. It's a play on currencies, but this is a, a, a more recent occurrence. I mean, the flows into EM, into local EM rates, uh, that's really only been the last, call it six months, but for the better part of the last two and a half years, you've been seeing flows into hard currency EM debt, and it's been off the charts. So how much would the dollar have to strengthen to cause some serious pain? That's a that's a tricky question. I mean, I can't really say. I know our, our friends over in BI Economics have basically called for a stronger dollar over the better part of, you know, well, really when the Fed starts, you know, uh, you know uh, rolling off, uh, you know, the excess, it's basically tapering, it's it's pulling back the balance sheet, et cetera. I think, I think it would take quite a bit for you to see things start to go, but when they go, they can go in a hurry. I was just looking at the difference in the yield between the funds that invest in the local currency debt and the hard currency uh, debt of the same nations. And you're talking about a spread of anywhere from 4.5% for the hard currency to getting maybe a little bit more, 5.25% for uh, the local currency uh, funds. 
Is that really, an, are you taking more risk when you come, when you think about the reward? I mean, is 75 basis points really that much in the overall scheme of things that you're going to take that that risk not at all and i think you have to be clear about who the constituents of those two indices are right in in hard currency you've got a lot of those you know single b sovereign names you had mentioned previously kind of the iraqs the turkmenistan i mean tajikistan i mean like there's been a ton of single b sovereigns that have come to market in hard currency debt over the better part of the last few years in local currency uh investable local currency government debt from emerging markets there's only a handful i would say you know 20 at the most and you're really talking about the majors there i'm wondering how much uh the investors who are pouring money into emerging markets right now are looking at these specific countries and their respective issues and how much is coming in through uh, broad market indexed funds. The reason why I ask is because it's sort of disingenuous for us to sort of lump a whole vast swath of countries together as just emerging markets and to uh, view them completely unilaterally. I I mean, do you feel like people are delineating between better credits and worse credits? No, I don't think they are at all. I, I think it's, as you said, I think it's passive investment. I think it's um, it's really just, you know, basically people saying, I want to own it all. I want to own everything and I want to own it in whatever incremental size it's coming to market in. Um, I will say, though, just if you're looking at um, emerging- Thank you, the land of ETFs, right? <laughs> well, right? well, I mean, you don't get QE. to pick and choose, right? I, I mean, you go into I, an I, ETF like this, you don't get to say, oh, I want everything uh, but uh, debt from Uruguay. I, I just think the, the, the risk that you're, you're mentioning is structural, right? I mean, the fact that um, the underlying emerging market bonds, even the hard currency US dollar bonds, the fact that an ETF is allowing you to provide daily liquidity in and out of those positions when those bonds don't really trade like that, that could be uh, an area of concern going forward, just that structural liquidity mismatch, so to speak. And, and so that is an area that I'm looking at. It's an area that my peers I know have looked at very closely, but you know, we're not quite uh, we're not quite sure what to make of it at this point. And of course, Chinese uh, the Chinese Congress meets next week and mm-hmm. uh, could also throw some uh, potential hot potatoes. Into and the it's mix. interesting how liquidity can dry up so quickly, uh, particularly in uh, debt that is maybe not universally uh, traded. Hmm. Have to watch this. And that's why we've got Damien Sassar. He is our fixed income strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Late last night, the European Central Bank officials uh, were said to be uh, considering cutting their monthly bond buying, but at least half starting in January. This was reported by uh, Bloomberg News. And the reaction to this is sort of surprising because you think, okay, the ECB is tapering its stimulus. People would sell their bonds, their uh, German government bonds. What do they do? They bought. Here to explain why and what this means about the great central bank unwind going forward is Scott Kimball, portfolio manager of the BMO TCH Core Plus Bond Fund, which trades under the ticker MCBIX. Uh, and he joins us here in our 1130 studio. Scott, I don't know if this can't get people to sell their government bonds. What will? Well, that's uh, first of all, thank you for having me. And uh, just to chime in on uh, what you were talking about there with the ECB, uh, you know, Chairman Draghi coming out and talking about reducing the quantitative easing program, uh, it, it comes with really two different lenses you have to look through it. One is the view of what that means inherently for uh, the bond market, which is uh, if people are holding on to German bonds, Spanish debt, Italian debt, uh, at, and expecting that the ECB is going to come in and purchase those securities from them. 
uh, over the near term, then they could be potentially disappointed in the fact that they've come out and said, well, we're going to continue buying, but not quite as much, which should, in theory, put pressure on these spreads between those to move higher and rates to move higher uh, accordingly. Uh, what happened is that we saw investors come in and actually begin purchasing bonds again today very strongly at a faster pace, which we would interpret as meaning that while the ECB is reducing the uh, overall size of the program, uh, the investors are still betting that it's going to continue further on into the future and that the ECB is rather just sort of keeping pace with what the Fed and other central banks are doing in that they're not taking away the punch bowl entirely. There's still a lot of reasons why liquidity needs to remain very high in these economies, but uh, they're just taking some of the sugar out of it. We've seen a very strong recovery throughout uh, certainly the U.S. Uh, from our cycle, uh, Japan. We've seen the equity market over there come to life, and we're seeing that European data has been strong. So uh, this is probably a fairly appropriate step from the ECB, but we don't anticipate that they're going to be exiting this uh, bond buying program in the intermediate term, which is why we think you saw investors come in and sort of reassert their position. Hey, Scott, I just wonder, maybe there's a third uh, a third possibility, and this could then we get into some talk about what's in the, the your portfolio. But um, all right, let's say that rates do rise, if they ever do rise in Europe. That's going to make the new bonds more expensive. And if you are an investor rather than a speculator, I mean, has anyone ever really gotten fired because, you know, they missed 25 basis points or 50 basis points over a 30-year or a 20-year period? I mean, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to go out and sell your whole insurance portfolio of government bonds because, you know, oh, I could get 25 basis points more? I think you bring up an important point, and that's really something that's kind of been in the heart of our positioning in the, in the Core Plus Fund, which is that when you look at what's going on in the world and what these banks have engineered, it's a world where there is a wash with cash. Insurance companies in particular, you know, is a very important name that you brought up is the insurance industry. They have gigantic pools of cash and very long dated liabilities. There's a bigger risk to them misstepping on the liability management side than missing 25 or 50 basis points on interest rates. So we would be complete agreement with that. Okay. So then I want to want you to follow up on what's in the portfolio and how you construct your portfolio of the Core Plus Bond Fund. Because one of the things that I note when I look at it, you got a lot of floating rate debt. Absolutely. And uh, that floating rate debt is a structural opportunity for us to position Core Plus Fund and really any of our strategies to take advantage of different segments of the bond market. What we do is look for bottom-up value across the entire spectrum of fixed income and say, where are there structural inefficiencies? One inefficiency that we noticed that went back really about 12 to 18 months was that LIBOR uh, and the Fed funds rate were sort of behaving uh, counterintuitively to what you'd anticipate from a rising Fed. So that meant that floating rate notes were very cheap. You could buy uh, interest rate, uh, these are interest rate bond instruments, just like any other corporate bond. And when rates rise, they're coupon rises. So their sensitivity to rates is not particularly strong, which we thought was very important for protecting the dollars we had invested on the front end. And we're, we're talking about companies like uh, Abbott Labs, eBay, Daimler Finance, IBM, Kraft Heinz, Activision, Blizzard. I mean, those are the kind of corporate names we're talking about with some of this floating rate debt. Absolutely. So when we use uh, when we look at the core plus fund and decide where we want to take risk and how we want to budget risk, that is a pocket, the floating rate notes, the front end, the shorter dated securities where we're looking for a lot of liquidity and we're not looking for credit headaches. So we use a lot of high quality companies whose equity prices have given their balance sheets a tremendous cushion. Is there anything that you're avoiding? Certainly. So when we look at where we are in the credit cycle, we keep hearing that referenced by uh, constituents, investors, uh, fund managers. Uh, the word credit cycle, the term credit cycle keeps getting used. Our opinion is that we're in the seventh inning stretch. 
uh, and take me out to the ball game keeps playing on repeat. And that's exactly what central banks have engineered. So what we're looking at is trying to balance the idea that risk probably still does well for the next 12 months, but at the same time, keeping the powder dry to take advantage of some opportunities that might be created in, let's say, for example, high yield bonds. Our allocation to high yield bonds as, that's, as that sector has outperformed has been trimmed back with the anticipation that as we're not getting paid as much to own it, maybe we can raise some liquidity and in the event there's a market disruption, we could jump in and buy some yields. What are you buying for yield then? Are you buying emerging markets? We're not buying emerging market debt. Uh, we've been focused primarily on moving a little further out the yield curve and investment grade, where we're willing to take a little more duration at this point. We think that interest rates have been pretty subdued, and that when we look at the corporate bond market, we see dislocations occur that don't make a lot of sense. So one example I would give you is you know Amazon buys Whole Foods and the debt of Kroger Corporation sells off. We think that might be unjustified. We jump in and we lock in the yields at higher rates than they were the day before. So it sounds like you're expecting a flatter yield curve. Uh, I think that it's consistent with the Fed rhetoric and the Fed action that the yield curve continues to flatten some, but we do think that the Fed is very conscious of what the potential precursor could be if the yield curve were to invert. So we think that uh, a flatter yield curve, but a very incremental Fed as it flattens. And year to date, the fund is up a little bit more than 4%, and you're getting what, like a 29 to 3% uh, yield on the uh, on the payout. One of the things I want to ask about has to do with the way in which you construct your portfolio, because I notice, you know, you're buying in very specific lots. You know, you're buying twenty thousand here, fifteen thousand there. Is there, how do you organize? I mean, you're going to buy uh, the same amount of Fannie Mae paper as you would eBay floating rate paper. How do you, or is it just inventory? What's available? It really reflects what what where we want the overall risk and return profile of the fund to be. One thing you'll notice about the Core Plus Fund relative to perhaps uh, uh, others is that we don't carry thousands of securities. We have 250 individual line items. So we really have a thorough understanding of this bond adds value. There's a value proposition. We own the security. and We own it in an amount that reconciles the way we expect the portfolio to perform in various scenarios. Your ability to do that gets heavily diluted if you have too many individual line items. And just quickly, give you 10 seconds. Uh, cash, you got about 4.5% of cash. Going to just keep it there? Cash is really a residual of what we do, and that reflects the fact that we do think um, you know, there's a lot of opportunities. We have 96% of our fund invested, uh, but we have a little bit there for those really unique opportunities to come along. All right. Just as you said, those floating rate notes uh, about 12 to 18 months ago. Thanks very much for being here. Scott Kimball, always a pleasure. Portfolio Manager of the BMO TCH Core Plus Bond Fund, symbol MC, BIX, MCBIX. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.